following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. Now I'd like to jump into the, uh, the subject at hand, the series Identity. And we are, um, it's appropriate to talk about identity on Mother's Day because mothers have such a fundamental impact on our identity. I've seen this in uh, our two, Rebecca and I have two little ones, a two-year-old and almost four-year-old, our son and daughter, and we've seen this in their lives. And even though like, I have a great bond with them, I tickle them and wrestle with them and jump out and scare them and things like that that they love, um, at least I think they do, or they're going to need therapy soon, uh, one or the other. But we have this special bond. Uh, I have a special bond with them, but their bond to Rebecca, their mom, is something completely, I mean, it's, it, it's far beyond that. So take, for example, my son, Nehemiah. I mean, he's a tough little guy. He will be running at full, full tilt. He'll trip over something. He'll just slam on the ground and be like, okay, someone call 911. And he'll pop up and be like, I fell down. And then keep running right back around whatever he's running. He's this tough guy, but he loves his mama. And he's in this season now where he's getting more verbal and he punctuates all of his sentences with mama. And he'll say, you know, I want, hold me mama, or I want juice mama, or I fell down mama. And what's weird is mama doesn't even have to be in the room. Sometimes I'm like, I'm dada. Okay, that's who this is. But he's bonded to his mother. Scarlett would, when she was little, our, our almost four-year-old, she would walk around constantly asking Rebecca to hold her. And uh, occasionally I, I would walk and be like, Dada can hold you, and finally she looked at me like, all right, I'll take the consolation prize. And I would hold her, and I'd be holding her for about like five minutes, and my arm would just start burning, and I'd realize, how big are Rebecca's biceps that she does this all day? I need to hit the gym, my goodness. And so, um, but there's a special bond that children have with their mother. In fact, I saw in the news a Mother's Day article, and a psychiatrist was talking about how fundamental a mother is to a child's sense of self-worth. And they say it stems all the way from the womb into infancy when a mother is constantly caring for this child for their basic needs and it lays the foundation work for that child's self-esteem and self-worth. And this subject of identity and self-worth are some of the deepest waters, the most deepest subject matter that we can deal with as human beings. Our, our identity, not just how we feel about ourselves, but what we see ourselves as, is something that affects and tints every other part of our lives. We've been dealing with this subject the last several weeks. We're wrapping up our discussion today. And we're talking about and following the journey of a guy by the name of Naaman in the Old Testament. We're following his journey because he's wrestling with these identity issues. And the story is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open to 2 Kings chapter 5. The story uh, takes place in there. It's, it takes place about 850 years before the time of Jesus. And here's the basic of the story. The interesting thing about this is it's actually a two-part story, and we've been dealing with part one, this entire study, and we're going to finally turn our attention to part two of this story, which is really unexpected the way the story ends. 
But here's how the story goes. There's a guy named Naaman, and he is the commander of the Syrian army. Here's what that means. He is, as it compares to Israel, Syria and Israel are enemies. They're attacking each other. There are battles. And this guy, Naaman, he is commanding the armies that are attacking Israel. So from Israel's perspective, he is an enemy. From a world's perspective, he's got any, everything the world has to offer. He's got success, position, power. He's got incredible wealth. He's got connections. He's got everything the world has to offer. But the problem is he's got leprosy. That is the most dreaded disease of the day. It was a, a disease that would spread all over your skin, killing your skin, rotting your skin from the outside in. And slowly the, it would kill your skin, turning it stark white and could spread over your body and it's fatal. And they had no known cure at the time. So he had, he, he was, had everything in the world, but he had leprosy. And he's so desperate to get cured of his leprosy that he's willing, when, when a servant girl tells him, hey, there's a prophet in Israel that could cure you, he's willing, first off, to humble himself and take her input. But second of all, he's so desperate, he's willing to go to Israel, his enemy, asking for help to cure his leprosy. He goes to Israel, but as we've looked at the last couple weeks, he doesn't just show up by himself. No, he's going to go in style because remember, in his mind, he's got everything going for him and he wants that on full display. He brings a letter that shows his connections from the king of Syria, gives it to the king of Israel. He comes with an incredible amount of money. He's traveling with something like hundreds of millions of dollars, the equivalent of that. He comes with a whole wardrobe of red carpet level clothing to show his beauty and his glory. And he comes with, uh, with soldiers and chariots and horsemen to show his power. He wants all of what he is by the world standards to show and the fact that he has leprosy. He doesn't want that to take away from who he thinks he is. He comes to Israel and he eventually heads to the prophet named uh, Elisha. He eventually heads to his house and he's got one thing on his mind. He wants to be cured of his leprosy. Here's what happens. He gets to Elisha's house. We're going to jump down to chapter 5, verse 10. Here's what happens. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be, now what's the word you see right there? Restored and you shall be, I want you to notice one, this one too, you shall be clean. Let's keep going. Verse 11, but Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and, look at this word, cure the leper. Naaman walks up to Elisha, gets to his house. Elisha doesn't even bother to come out, sends a messenger to him. That offends Naaman. Sends a messenger to him, and then the messenger says, Elisha told me to tell you, go wash in the Jordan seven times. That also offends Naaman. He says, are you serious? First of all, he's going to blow me off, and then he's going to send me to some dirty river. I could have done this back in Syria, back in my hometown of Damascus. What in the world? He's offended. He's enraged. Now, he's going to end up leaving Elisha's house furious, and his servants are going to say as they're passing by the Jordan, please, just give it a try. And once again, he's going to humble himself to his servants, to his servants' advice. 
and he's gonna wash himself seven times in the Jordan. Now, there's something in these verses that I want you to notice, okay? And you're gonna have to put your literary nerd hat on, okay? Do we have any literature nerds here? Be proud, two of you, okay? That's okay, we'll stick together, okay? Um, Everyone put on your literary nerd hat, okay? I want you to see something because there's something beautifully woven into this passage. In this passage, there are a couple different words used to describe Naaman's healing. The first is the one that Naaman used. He said, I thought Elisha would come out here and cure this leper, is what he says. Use the word cure. Now, this is the word that's been used the entire time in the story up until this point. They've all talked in terms of curing his leprosy, curing his leprosy. And in the ancient Hebrew, this word means something like removing the leprosy. They're just wanting to get rid of Naaman's leprosy. The the, uh, servant girl says that, uses the word cure. The Syrian king uses the word cure. The Israelite king uses the word cure. And Naaman uses the word cure. Up until this point, it's the only word used. Their focus is just get rid of the leprosy. You can't really blame them, can you? Leprosy, I mean, it is not only disfiguring, it's not only fatal, but maybe the worst part is if you have leprosy in many cultures, you would have to go live outside the camp, the city, or the village so that you didn't spread contagion. And so Naaman, think about it like this. He's like the ultimate insider in his culture, but then he gets leprosy, and he's, depending on their culture, he's now the outside, outsider. No one wants to be around him. No one wants us to catch his disease. He may even have to eventually go live outside the camp so he doesn't spread it. He becomes the ultimate outsider. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like you are the outsider. Maybe there's been a, a social event, you felt like an outsider, maybe your place of work, maybe even in a family setting, you felt like the outsider. It is no fun feeling like the outsider. When I was in college, Rebecca and I were dating our senior year of college. And at the time I lived uh, on, uh, for my senior year, I lived in the dorms on campus. She lived uh, off campus in a house with some of her girlfriends. And she told me uh, in the fall, she said, hey, um, we're, we're gonna be throwing at the house, we're gonna be throwing a Halloween party. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, that sounds like fun. Bunch of friends, there's uh, food, fun costumes. That sounds great. And so I was like, okay, I'll definitely set aside the night. I'll be there. And so I went away and I started plotting my costume. And I came up with, the be- I mean, the best idea. On campus, there was this restaurant called The Grill. And The Grill had the best homemade cookies that they're huge, these huge chocolate chip cookies. They were warm and they would wrap them in this tinfoil. And I said, that's it. I am going to dress like a grill cookie. So I got a huge piece of cardboard. It was big and round like this. Came all the way up to my neck, down past my knees. And I I colored in these dark circles like chocolate chips. I had one on the front, one on the back. I covered the sides. And then I wrapped the bottom with tinfoil so it looked like the cookies coming out of the tinfoil. And when I put it on, I couldn't even bend my arms. I would walk like this, okay? And so I'm like, this is going to be hilarious. So I put on the costume. We pull up, and I show up at the party. I walk in, and I'm in the living room surrounded by people. And that's when I realized it wasn't a costume party. I'm looking around. The music, I don't, it's like the music even stopped. Okay, I don't even know how it goes. And everyone's looking. Luckily for me, Rebecca wasn't yet at the party. 
until I turned around and she had walked in. And everyone went from laughing at me to laughing at her. And she didn't appreciate that. She was beet red, okay? That's when I felt like an outsider. I'm the only idiot in a cookie costume in the entire party. Okay, uh, no matter what the circumstance, you do not want to be the outsider. Naaman is desperate to be cured. His whole focus is get rid of the leprosy. Make it go away. I want to be cured. But at this point in the story, Elisha, and it's interesting that it's Elisha in particular, he introduces two new words. He doesn't say cured. He says, go to the Jordan. Your flesh will be restored and you will be made clean. Now, these words are much richer in the Old Testament. These Hebrew words, the word for clean is the spiritual ritual, same word that a spiritual ritual, when if a a leper in Israel was cured, he'd show himself to, to a priest, the priest would examine him and then have him do a cleansing ritual, which was like a spiritual cleansing. There's a spiritual weight to this word cleansing. And he says cleansing, and then he says restored, which is even more of a rich word in the Old Testament. And to see the significance of that word, I want you to jump down in the story, down to verse 14. Look what it says. This is talking about Naaman. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. Naaman goes, dips himself in the Jordan River, and he is healed, He goes back to Elisha, and notice it specifically calls him the man of God. It omits his name. uh, He goes back to the man of God, and he says he wants to give him a gift. And on his mind is now he knows there's one God in all the world, and it's the God of Israel. But I want you to notice, did you notice the word choice of the narrator? Did you notice that? Narrator doesn't use Naaman's word, cured. He picks up on Elisha's word. He said he dips himself in the water. It says his flesh was restored and he was clean. Now here's what this word restored means. There's a play on words in these two verses. When it says his flesh was restored and then it says and he returned to the man of God, that's the same Hebrew word. The word for restored or returned is this very rich word that can mean like Not just return physically, but it's the same word used to say, and he returned to God. And when it says restored, it's not just like he made it better. It's like all the bad things were made right. This is one of the richest words in the Old Testament. That's when someone returns to God and God makes it right. Now, what's, why is the narrator shifting these words for healing? This is so important to understanding the story of Naaman. Did you notice all through this story, Naaman's got one thing on his mind, whatever it takes, I will be cured. Make the leprosy go away. It's all he's thought about. Whether he has to intimidate to get it, whether he has to impress to get it, whether he has to buy it off, he will get, he will be cured. 
And when he comes back to Elisha, there's one thing on his mind, and it's surprising. You'd expect Naaman to come back and be like, man, I can't believe it. You cured me of my leprosy. How did you do that? That's incredible. I can't wait to go back to Syria. I'm going to show all my friends. We're going to have a party. I can't wait to show my family. Look, it's all gone. I've been cured. I can't believe it. You'd expect the one thing on his mind is that the same thing has been on his mind the whole time that he's cured, but that is not what's on his mind. Did you notice what he's thinking about? He comes back and his, what's on his mind is not his healing, it's God. Now I know that there is one God in all the world, the God of Israel. Here's why the wording is so, we have to be so sensitive and we'll look at the wording. Because up until this point, we thought the story was about a guy getting physically healed but it's really about a guy getting spiritually healed. It's not really about his external leprosy. It's about his internal leprosy. He's had a conversion. It's not just an an allegiance shift from the gods that they worshiped in Syria to the, the almighty living God of the Bible. It's not just a conversion. It is a conversion, an allegiance shift. But he's been so changed, he's not focused about himself anymore. He's focused on God. There's an internal shift that's happened. The story is about what God's been doing on the inside. Now, to understand how this works out, you've got to see part B of the story because it's a shocker. If you remember, Naaman Naaman asks Elisha if he can give him a gift. And here's what Elisha says in verse 16. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman wants to give Elisha a gift, a thank you gift. Elisha says, this is important wording, as the Lord lives, I will not do it. I will not receive it. Why? Because all glory goes to God. Now jump down to verse 19. Let's see the rest of the story. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent the men on their way and they departed. Okay, Naaman leaves and Gehazi is a guy who's Elisha's servant. If you read other stories in the Bible about Elisha, you will hear about his servant Gehazi. He's there by his side. He's seen all the incredible things God has done through Elisha. Gehazi's watching this, and he can't believe it. Are you serious? You're just going to let this guy go? And look at all the wealth he brought with him. I mean, you're not going to make him pay anything? And he says, uses the same words that Elisha does. He says, as the Lord lives, I will go and get something. 
races after Naaman. And do you notice he concocted a story? Totally lied. He has to come up with an excuse as a cover story for why Elisha apparently changed his mind. Oh yeah, two prophets came up, so Elisha wanted wanted me to get money from you to give to these prophets. So maybe you could spare a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Now, a talent of silver would probably be in the millions of dollars. Naaman has had such a change of heart. He says, take two talents and take these changes of clothing and I'll have my servants carry it back. Gazi follows Naaman's servants back and hides it in his house. Now, what in the world is happening here? Of all people, Gehazi should know better. Elisha is the spiritual leader of all of Israel, and Gehazi's been his right-hand man. He knows better. But notice the wording. He says, as the Lord lives. Why would he have the audacity to say that wording? It's because he thinks wholeheartedly he's in the right How could he possibly think he's in the right? It looks like it's just greed. It's probably greed, but there's something else that we get a hint into Gehazi's heart. Did you notice what he called Naaman? He said, that Naaman the Syrian. See that little dig? Syrians are their enemies. They're attacking Israel. Naaman is not just any old Syrian. He's commanding the armies that are attacking Israel. What's Gehazi's problem? He's bigoted. What is bigotry? It is feeling superior over someone based on something that you have. He's got superiority over him, so he believes things that Naaman has rightfully belongs to him. He feels totally, he's so locked in his own self-righteous, self-righteous superiority that he thinks he's totally justified in making a lie, and he hides the stuff in his house. Let's finish up the story. Here's what happens. Verse 25. He went in and stood before his master, Elisha, and said to him, Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Now watch this. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. The end. Man, the Bible has a way of telling a story that just when you're like, wow, what a great story, Naaman. You know, I love that. It's like, okay, we're not done yet. It has part B. Man, this story is communicating something so important. What in the world? Why should Gehazi be leprous? I thought this whole passage was all about healing people. It's displaying a truth that could be healing in your life. This story might heal you and me. Here's what's happening. What's, the story of Naaman is chiefly not a story of his external healing. We see that in the verbiage shift at the end. It's about his internal healing. It's about God shifting his allegiance from worshiping himself to worshiping God, from being consumed with his issues to being consumed with God, from finding his value in these externals to finding God as the most valuable thing. It's an internal shift. 
What's the deal then with the leprosy? The leprosy is an extraordinary picture externally of what's happening internally to Naaman. His problem is not just actual, literal, external leprosy. It's also leprosy of the heart. Naaman is finding his value from external things. We'll say it's, we'll call it self-righteousness. If you were to call someone self-righteous, is that a compliment? No. Why? What you're saying is you're acting like you're superior to everybody else. What is self-righteous? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is trying to earn externally. It's trying to earn, to claw for, to grab for acceptance and approval. That's what self-righteousness is. We think of it in spiritual terms. Someone trying to act holy and like a good person or a Christian person or a godly person and they think that is what is going to make them get approval from God, but it can be in any category. I can strive to be successful and throw my life into being a success to earn the approval and the acceptance as a successful person. It's anything externally I do to get acceptance and approval. I can hone and shape my body to get acceptance and approval as a beautiful person. I can amass wealth to gain acceptance and approval that that I am someone of value. It's anything I do externally to try and earn approval. Here's the problem. It's just like leprosy of the soul. Because like leprosy rots our skin from the outside in, self-righteousness trying to earn approval and acceptance to find my value, it rots my soul from the outside in. It kills me slowly. Because as I try and find my value and significance and self-worth from externals, then I rise and fall on every compliment and criticism. Every compliment swells my self-importance and every criticism reduces me to self-loathing. Knocks the wind out of me, knocks my legs out from under me. My my self-esteem rises and falls on how I compare myself to other people. At moments I feel superior and at other moments I am just writhing in jealousy and envy, fighting feelings of inferiority. Self-righteousness rots our souls. Naaman was not just cured of his external leprosy, but his internal leprosy. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It shows us what happened to Gehazi. Gehazi found his self-worth in being this, the right person as opposed to Naaman, on being the insider as opposed to the outsider. And what showed is now he has the external leprosy that matches his self-righteous internal leprosy. What's the point of this passage? There is an incredible irony in here. Did you see it? From Israel's perspective, you couldn't have a greater outsider than Naaman. Syrian general enemy on top of that, a leper, technically not allowed inside their cities or villages. Total outsider. Who's Gehazi? He's the right-hand man to the most godly spiritual leader in all of Israel. He's seen Elisha heal people, raise people from the dead. He should have known better. The ultimate insider. What's going on in this passage? It's this. This passage. To those who feel like outsiders, it's a welcome. And to those who feel like insiders, it's a warning.
It's a welcome to outsiders and it's a warning to insiders. And see, this, this idea plays itself out in Scripture over and over and over. Think about the ministry of Jesus. Who is drawn to Jesus and who is repelled from Jesus? Those who are drawn to Jesus were the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And who was repelled by Jesus, who hated Jesus. It was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, the spiritual elites, the ultimate insiders. They literally plotted to kill Jesus and stirred up the crowd, created the scenario so that Jesus would be put to death. Why? Because the message of Jesus is fundamentally polar opposite of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness says, I can earn God's approval, but Jesus says, you can't. It's a gift. Self-righteousness says, look at me, I'm a good person. I compare myself to my neighbors and my coworkers. I'm a pretty good person. But the message of Jesus is fundamentally opposite. He says, no, the standard of whether you're a good person is God himself. So unless you have perfect God-like goodness, you've fallen short. And what that means is every single one of us deserves an eternity away from God in hell. And the message of the gospel is not that you've earned God's love. It's that despite the fact that we are enemies of God, outsiders, despite that fact, God says, but I love you so much. You want to know how much I love you? Look at Jesus on the cross. Look at this grisly scene of him bleeding and being tortured and suffering on the cross. Look at that scene and see the cost of sin and then know that I'm doing that because I desperately love you. And I cannot imagine eternity without you. The message of Jesus is that the love of God cannot be earned, but it is freely given. It's a welcome to outsiders, but it's a warning to insiders. I want to start with insiders. Maybe you're here and you feel like you're kind of like, of the two people, you're more like Gehazi. You say, look, I'm, I'm kind of an insider in that I've grown up in church all my life. Or maybe you say, like, I had a radical conversion and now I'm looked at as like a spiritual leader. Like, I know a lot about the Bible. I know a lot of stuff. I actually, maybe you say, I teach Bible studies or I have a, a position in the church. I'm one of those people that other people come to for input and advice. You know, I share my faith. I, I'm a very generous person. I've, I've got it together. I'm an insider. Man, there is a great warning in this passage to you. It's the same warning Jesus said when he told a parable. He says, there's two men in the synagogue praying. One is a tax collector and he's saying, God, I, I, he says, please, I, I am such a sinner. I do not deserve your mercy. He says, the other is a Pharisee that says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. And Jesus' point is, you want to have the heart of the one who's begging for God's mercy. Insiders, it's the same warning that Paul levels to the Galatians. He says, oh, you foolish ones, what started as a work of the Spirit, why are you continuing with the law? In other words, you started this journey as an act of grace that you didn't deserve, then why are you building on that foundation with self-righteousness? You initially were so humbled and shocked that God could love you. At what point did you get to a place where you said, look at how godly I am. Look at how I've overcome sin. Look at what I can do. At what point did spiritual pride sneak into your heart where you found your identity and self-esteem on anything other than Jesus Christ? It is a great warning to insiders. What began 
with an act of grace should continue with an act of grace. What began as a gift we didn't deserve is what we should cling to. Christian, can I plead with you, preach the gospel to yourself every day. And when you confess your sins, go to God and say, see, Lord, look, at I, I've sinned. I know I already have your forgiveness, but this is a reminder of where my value lies. It's not in my righteousness. It's in the righteousness of Christ. Because my identity, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and not my righteousness, his righteousness. It's a warning to those insiders, cling to the gospel. Find your identity only in that figure on the cross. But to the outsiders, it's a welcome. For those of you who feel so far from God, can I tell you, do you know actually the core foundation to your self-esteem, even more important than the, than the approval of the mother who birthed you, is your creator who invented you? And you notice, you know that he is offering his love to you freely. You say, I feel like I'm a thousand miles away from God right now. You don't know all the things that I would have to do to get myself right with God, all the things I've done in my past. You don't know the ways I have messed up in my past and you don't know the things I'm entangled in now. I'd have to make all that right first, but you know what you're saying? I'd have to make all that right first to earn God's approval. That's not how it works. His arms are open wide and he's saying, just how you are right now today, I know everything that you've done and entangled in and I'm saying, I love you and I'll accept you right where you're at. How much does he love you? He says, I, I will allow your spiritual leprosy to cling to me. Jesus Christ came to earth and his, our sin clung to Jesus he became the spiritual leper. Do you know where they crucified him? To show him that he was rejected, they marched him outside the city. Ostracized, outcast, an outsider. The ultimate insider of heaven at the right hand of God is, the, is placed as the outsider outside of the city and crucified on the cross. He took your spiritual leprosy on himself. That's how much he loves you. You can come to him no matter what's going on in your life. Return to him. Let him restore you. I want to lead you in a simple prayer. If you're an outsider today and you want to run to Jesus, he will welcome you in. I want to give you an opportunity to receive his forgiveness. It's freely offered to you today. And I want to give you an opportunity to receive that. We can do that in just a simple prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you and you want to make that your prayer, receiving his forgiveness, to simply pray this right there in your seat. Say, Jesus, right there in your heart between you and God, say, Jesus, I know that I don't deserve your love. I know that I feel so far from you. But thank you that you love me so much you'll accept me right, how I'm, right where I'm at. Thank you for your love. Thank you for what you did for me, conquered for me on the cross and through your resurrection from the dead. Thank you for loving me that much. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. 
For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.